0: This is Michael Cox for the InCommon podcast. In this episode, Hita and I spoke with David Bollier. David is an author, activist, blogger, and consultant who spends a lot of time exploring the commons as a new paradigm of economics, politics, and culture. In 2010, David co-founded the Commons Strategies Group, a consulting project that works to promote the commons internationally. More recently, David became the director of the Reinventing the Commons program at the Schumacher Center for A New Economics based in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. David has authored and co-authored many books, and we focus in particular on his book, Free, Fair, and Alive, The Insurgent Power of the Commons, which he co-authored with Silke Helfrich, who unfortunately passed away last year. Much of this book and our conversation with David focused on the idea of commoning which is a different take on the commons than what you might be used to hearing on this podcast. This idea thinks less about the commons as a mere physical description of the environment and more about the relationships that we have with the environment and with each other. It is also seen as a response to historic enclosures of the commons and to a Western emphasis on governance and environmental property as inherently exclusionary practices. I think the commoning approach is an important complement to the commons as resource perspective, as it pays more attention to politics, power, and inequality, whereas much of the traditional commons work that I know of at least has tended to shy away from these topics. If our conversation interests you, I would head over to David's website, bolier.org. That's B O L L I E R.org. So David, thanks for joining us. The first question I'd love to ask you has to do with all the different hats. It seems like you wear, right? So reading about your background online, you co-founded this Commons strategies group with this, which is this consulting project. You are, um, the founding director of this reinventing the commons program at the Schumacher center for a new economics. And in our initial email correspondence, I don't know if you remember, I told you that um, I spent a fair bit of time in Salisbury, Connecticut, going for long bike rides. And I've biked past that exact center and even like stopped there and kind of leered at it a little bit, wondering <laughs> what interesting things could be happening there. So I'm glad we get to <laughs> this Frontiers of commenting podcast. And you've written a slew of books, uh, one of which primarily we're going to talk about today. Free, Fair, and Alive, which you co-authored with, and I hope I get this name somewhat correctly, Silke uh, Helfrich? That's correct. Um, a German colleague of yours. I, I, might, I might
1: add a late colleague of mine. She tragically died last November in a oh, hiking, yeah. hiking accident, and we had collaborated for about 15 years uh, on the commons. So okay. uh, I just wanted to insert that.
0: Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's difficult. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Um, So David, the the first question I'd love to ask you is how did you get involved in the idea of the commons in the first place? What what were the events that turned you towards thinking that these were really important set of ideas that you wanted to focus on?
1: Well, uh, there was kind of a backstory in the sense that I had worked in the late 1970s and uh, early 1980s in Washington, D.C., in the public interest community, especially with uh, Ralph Nader. And in retrospect, it became clear that a lot of the work that I and my colleagues were working on are what I would now call enclosures of the commons, fighting against those, uh, meaning uh, privatization of public research, of the airwaves, of public lands, and many other things like that. We didn't really have a vocabulary for talking about enclosures of the commons then, uh, but it was about the privatization, the commercialization, essentially the marketization of shared wealth. And 20, 20 years later, when I was despairing of mainstream politics and especially the Democratic Party being able to be an instrument for change and transformation, uh, a number of things came together in which I saw the, the merits of talking about the commons. Uh, one was of course, Eleanor Ostrom's work, which I became familiar with governing the commons. Uh, in the late 1990s, the World Wide Web, which had gone popular in 1994, uh, was, was flourishing more, as was open source software. And then I hooked up with a, uh, a number of what I call refugees from Washington politics to start a project called the Tomales Bay Institute, which in a deliberate fashion wanted to use the commons framing and discourse to rethink liberal politics uh, or not not just a liberal but we came out of that tradition um and so there was this confluence of things which set me on the path of the commons and then for the past 20 years i've been working with a number of europeans and others to uh learn more and develop that framework in a in more contemporary settings and even global west and north settings as opposed to the global south
0: okay and so can you talk to me a bit about these organizations that I listed as well? Are you still involved in this common strategies group that you co-founded?
1: Well, since the passing of uh, Silke Helfrich and my, the other colleague, uh, Michelle Bowens of the Peer to Peer Foundation, who has concentrated his energies on his project, uh, it's really more or less defunct. However, a number of us in the international activist community of focus on the commons are uh, contemplating reconstituting it in a different format. The purpose as it was before and what we need now is kind of a gathering spot to trade news and information, to have ad hoc collaborations on different initiatives and to just uh, in a transnational way, knit together the people in France and Germany, the United States, the global South, to uh, see what's happening in contemporary commons uh,
0: and what interventions we might take to, uh, to foster it. Okay. And this other organization that I mentioned, the, the, the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. Yes,
1: it's, it was founded in 1980 um, by uh, a number of people who were taken by E.F. Schumacher's, the the, British, uh, the German-British economist who wrote Small is Beautiful, which was a major sensation of actually almost exactly 50 years ago. And the Schumacher Center is devoted to a broad ranging agenda of uh, reviving and invigorating local economies. They have, for example, a major project on community land trusts. And they have one of the few successful regional currencies, the shares, which actually they just launched a blockchain enabled version of that uh, as a currency to promote the economy in that region. It's not tradable elsewhere. It's not a capitalist speculative currency like Bitcoin. But uh, so they're involved in a number of initiatives to reinvigorate localism. And of course, the commons is part of that agenda. So, uh, that's what they're all about and they're they're involved also internationally with a number of like-minded projects.
0: Okay and so David do you how much do you engage with uh folks in academia have you engaged much with say the International Association for the Study of the Commons or other faculty at different universities as a part of your work?
1: I do it's it's irregular
0: Uh, I actually spoke once at the uh Uh,
1: Eleanor Ostrom's workshop at Indiana University, and uh, met her a couple of times. And I have a number of friends who are deeply involved with the IASC. Uh, Here, I'm in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I have uh, a friend, uh, Professor Charles, Charlie Schweik, who uh, is heavily involved with IASC. And we have a, a number of projects we collaborate on, including uh, a federated Wiki of Commons profiles that we're uh, in the midst of preparing. So it's more as projects of opportunity arise, as opposed to writing monographs or doing uh, fieldwork of certain types of commons. I do my own type of fieldwork, but I don't produce academic monographs from them. It's more from an activist and policy perspective.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I got an email from Charlie earlier this week. He's been just a great colleague to interact with for me for like the last, I would say, five or six years. Absolutely, yeah. You, I think you called yourself a kind of a fugitive from D.C. I mean, that's a very interesting story. And now it's not lost on me that a lot of your work feels like it's about kind of bottom-up local governance.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that I had sort of, uh, during the Clinton years, despaired of. Federal policy playing a more transformational, constructive role, and it became clear that the whole system was really being captured by the moneyed lobbies. The public interest community that used to have more influence, say in the late '60s or early '70s, was really getting edged out. Uh, you know, Ralph Nader's run for president in 2000 was maybe the last gasp of trying to turn that around, and so. Between what I call the market state, uh, and because they're so deeply allied, uh, being captured, I saw more energy happening outside of the state in do-it-yourself or do-it-together projects, uh, which are typified by commons. So I've been focused on that, especially in the past 15 years, and especially after connecting with a lot of Europeans who are quite active in uh, developing the commons paradigm.
0: Okay, I mean, this is interesting. I feel like there's a presumption among, say, students of mine here that, you know, if we wanna make a difference, we need to go to Washington. And there's certainly a media bias, right? I turn on NPR, there's gonna be some local politics where I I live, but a lot of it is there's this national level bias. And I think that that reinforces this, this understanding, this assumption that change really needs to happen in D.C. at a particular level or won't happen at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I get that especially from climate change activists who mm. say we don't have time. We have to intervene at the federal level. And I'm saying we've spent 30 years since James Hansen delivered his warning about climate change. And over 30 years, the federal government uh, or international governments and treaty treaty organizations have not been able to get their act together to uh, take Uh, what shall I say, decisive action. And so I think that it's partly because, uh, as I said, so much of it is politically locked up and there isn't the room or space and partly because the ambition of transformation needs the, what shall I say, the cellular transformation at the local or regional level first. It needs the different types of institutions, the different types of social relationships and practices that um, let's just say the market state system doesn't welcome or doesn't foster or facilitate. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I sort of understand the levers. My, my own theory of political change and social change comes from a different level than, say, standard liberalism, which says go to the federal government, pursue this litigation or lawsuit to the Supreme Court, and that'll solve the problem. I think that that really is only a stopgap or rear guard action is often extremely important, but I think the larger culture and social practices need attention.
0: Okay. So I think now is a reasonable time to kind of dive into the, a lot of the content in the book, Free, Fair and Alive, because a lot of what you're talking about in there relates to a kind of theory of change and how we can promote the kind of social and ecological changes that we want to see And there's a lot of different concepts in the book. Of course, one of the central ones is the commons, this idea of commoning and your own take on these ideas. So I'd love to ask you about your understanding of those, particularly how it relates to other concepts that our audience is going to be very familiar with, which you talk about, right? There is this, from from the Ostrom School, the commons is most often associated with a common pool resource, and or maybe a public good and that is defined as being subtractable in use so if i take a fish you david can't have it but it's also hard for me to stop you from taking other fish and you know one of my big takeaways from your work and off and frankly from kind of the commoning anti-enclosure movement in general that i've perceived is that it's it the The interpretation of the commons is really much more socially broad and embedded than this particular idea, including the idea that this idea of subjectability and excludability are we are misleading themselves. And this was one of the nuggets that was um, made my brain need to think a bit more was that we shouldn't think of these qualities as being inherent in the world themselves. They are as much a function of our relationship to the world and our understanding of that relationship as anything else. And so we need to question that basic framing, which was you know, part of the framing for my graduate education. So of course it was, okay, how, we, how do we, where do we go from here? But I, it, it, it also made sense to me. Like it makes sense to me to think about the commons as not necessarily just describing an environmental system. And I, my understanding is that you don't chuck that. You're not saying there's no environment here. There's no, and of course, now I want to avoid using the word natural resource because, as you and others say, resource is itself a loaded term. But it's about this kind of social ecological system, is the word I would use. I, I, that's not a prominent yes. word in your language, but. Yes.
1: I mean, I think the chief difference is that we, when, when Soka and I were writing this book, we had an epiphany midway through it, where we realized that the ontological register of standard economics was itself the problem, because it presumed certain types of relationships of, you know, rac- rational actor theory of resources being other and separate from humans and a lot of things like that. And so the whole standard economic framework was problematic in terms of what we had witnessed in dozens of commons, which were far more relational is the term that we emphasize, social relations, relations with the earth as a living ecosystem and things like that. And this was what we called an ontological shift or onto shift. And I think it's kind of a continental dividing line intellectually between a lot of standard economic frameworks and those that aspire to be more relational of the way ecologists say the world is. But, you know, so it's a difficult thing because a lot of people continue to have in mind that commons are resources. Oh, the oceans, the internet, uh, space, and so forth are commons. Well, they're common pool resources in search of commons governance, which they often don't have, and that the nation state is never going to provide because of its its prior allegiances and collaborations with capital. Uh, so this was a major philosophical breakthrough for Silka and I when we sort of were able to realize that certain vocabularies we need to escape or at least make secondary. Of course, certain things are quote resources, but in a commons, you have a cultural and social and even identity affiliation with the quote resource such that we wanted to rename it care wealth. It's something that you care about and you don't, it's a category error to say it's just a resource that is subject valued by price. So these are the kinds of issues we wrestled with in trying to uh, make sense of what we had seen firsthand in dozens of different contemporary commons, often in the global North and West, um, with the received vocabularies uh, of economics, which is, I I wanna hasten to add that uh, Eleanor Ostrom was a pioneer uh, in trying to, within that framework, develop these relational systems and show how cooperation uh, could flourish. And indeed, she used the, the master's tools against itself in, in focusing on how collaboration and cooperation uh, could be more uh, productive and efficient, a better way of resource management. Uh, I think, however, there are certain limits of that discourse in describing what we had described. And so it's not to say one is false or the other's. True. It's more to say they're different intellectual, philosophical approaches to the phenomena of commons. I think by talking about commoning, the verb, you start to get more at the heart of the matter that it's an activity and process uh, of human human relationships with other living systems. That's the core thing we should be focusing on.
0: Mm. So, David, I'd love to ask you about another concept that comes up in your book and, of course, is one of the foundational concepts in the field of of the commons, at least as I experience it, which is the tragedy of the commons, which um, is often criticized for, for I think, mostly good reasons. And one question I want to ask you about it is... um, is part of the reason, so if, if we're questioning this idea of the commons or a common pool resource, as you know, we're assuming that this kind of exclude, non-excludability and subtractability, those aren't inherent qualities of this. They are a function of how we relate to the environment. Something I've wondered about the tragedy of the commons is that it also assumes a particular relationship with the environment, which is somewhat destructive and degrading. And, and it says, okay, because of that, we need enclosures, we need boundaries, etc. And so I'm wondering whether there's a fit here that we can make between questioning this idea of a common pool resource. It's, if we say, okay, that's not an inherent feature of the, of the world, and we should not assume that all of the things we do to the Earth are damaging to it. And here I'm also kind of invoking... Uh, Counter narratives from indigenous perspectives that say, "Well, no, it's a lot of cultures have mutually beneficial relationships to the to the environment." Um, does this resonate with you?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the reasons we sort of had to figure out this onto shift because there are empirically lots of cultures that have surmounted the so-called tragedy. And I think part of the problem was once you accept the mindset and intellectual framework of rational actors, that it's rational to take as much as you can uh, and even destroy the environment uh, despite the palpable harm it's caused. I mean, that's like, irrational in the extreme It's sort of testing the limits of economic rationality and homo economicus as a depiction of the world and humanity. And I think we've seen that human beings are more complex. Of course, we have a lot of exploitative, rational, uh, abusive behaviors, but it's also true we have these immense capacities for cooperation and sharing and devising institutions of cooperation as Eleanor Ostrom, documented so copiously. And I think it's really, uh, once you can make the shift to this other framework of humanity's capacities, once you can see commons outside of the standard economic framework, a lot of possibilities open up uh, in terms philosophically and strate- strategically. And I think that's what Free, Fair and Alive, our book was all about, is trying to sketch this broader space and to uh, illustrate it not just with traditional or indigenous natural resource-based commons but things like wikipedia or open source software or urban commons or things like that to show that you know so-called modern humanity is not so different in some of its propensities as these uh, uh, com- indigenous or other communities that we all have these capacities and um so that's what we attempted to do in the book. And uh, you know, as activists and policy advocates, what we're also trying to open up new spaces for.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, talking of frames, talking of Wikipedia, talking of these various projects of commoning, um, when I was reading the book, um, I, I, I was struck by one of these things you mentioned in there, which is this idea that there are dominant worldviews, um, that, uh, you know, serve as a frame for what we perceive and what we don't perceive um, in the world. And in turn, the framing that we employ really would render a kind of a filter, right, a smoke screen for, for uh, whatever it is that uh, we want to draw attention to and so on. And, Parallelly, I was also reading another uh, set of literature from the Environmental Humanities from a friend of mine that we're going to be talking uh, to later. And she works on a completely different idea. She works with the endling taxidermy of Lonesome George, which is the last pintail Island uh, tortoise. Uh, she works with artistic representations of the extinct dodo birds and so on. But one thing she does say in, in all of these uh, Things that she studied is that a lot of curatorial practices that museums employ, a lot of practices that um, art uses to bring out this idea of extinction, um, often shifts focus away from the collective identity of a species uh, and and renders an individual as a very single entity, you know, in in uh, space and time. Um, So, for example, the first cloned sheep or the last representative of the quagga or the parrot or whatever, some some extinct animal, Um, the dodo and stuff. And as as I was reading your book, I was wondering if in focusing on how the collective is shaped or, or how the individual is shaped by the collective, there might not be a parallel argument going on there where the individual is sort of subsumed. Uh, and, and the reason I'm trying to get at this is you mentioned the idea of Wikipedia, right? And Wikipedia is a commons. It's it's user-generated uh, content. But then at the heart of all of that are individuals who might or might not have access to power, might or not, might not have access to electricity, might not have, you know, I mean, there are a whole lot of iniquitous things. So that the process of commoning is really occurring within uh, within a, an established capitalist society, which is deeply iniquitous. And I'm trying to figure out how much of that, I mean, you do get to the nested I, but also in more along the lines of how the I is influenced by the world. Uh, and I'm wondering how much the I influenced by the world around us might pose challenges or opportunities to create transformations of the kind we are talking about, uh, that makes sense. Well, uh,
1: you, you raise an important topic in terms of the individual being nested within a collective, yet they also retain individual agency and, and creativity. And I think that, that was another landing spot that my co-author Silke and I came to, because we realized that the technical philosophical term is a differ, differentiated relational ontology meaning we all have these individual capacities, but we're also inscribed within a larger collective. And we tried to explain that using the term Ubuntu rationality, Ubuntu meaning a term from South Africa, indigenous people who say, I am because we are. And so it's about aligning collective interest with individual interest without the collective simply taking over or or coercing or subsuming individual interests. So in other words, the, the commons is not simply analogous with socialism or communism as state power. It's something that is more of a social organism in which individual and collective interests are aligned. Now, you raise the point about unequal power or patriarchy or other things like that, which, you know, are entirely, of. Uh, they happen all the time, even within commons. And so the commons is no magic solution. It's more the culture and practices within those commons needs to readjust or change or not. Uh, you know, many of them seem quite resistant to that kind of change. On the other hand, from a handful of commons that I've seen in India, there's uh, serious um, feminist efforts to make commons less patriarchal. You know, so I think that you can't entirely tease out those questions of power imbalances from the commons. It's sort of, you have to work within them. Wikipedia is another example where you have a lot of gender issues and even hierarchy issues, perhaps because of its, its scale. We can have another discussion about scale and commons, uh, or that's a, a different discussion. But I, I just wanted to affirm your basic point that getting individual and collective in alignment is uh, arguably one of the central challenges of a comment.
0: Mm-hmm. David, I want to return to this idea of, of scale, as you mentioned, and build on um, Hita's question, but I'd also first like to ask you about this concept that you brought up earlier of, of care wealth. Yes. That was something that really caught my attention when I read it, and it's it it strikes me as something that is really resonates with how I'd like to reframe my thinking away from kind of, you know, natural resource management. Can you talk a bit more about where that term came from and what work it does for you? Sure. I was
1: really deeply inspired by uh, an Indian subcontinent uh, geographer, uh, Neera Singh, who's based at Toronto uh, University, or uh, I believe that's where she is. And she wrote an essay about what she called affective labor, meaning our affect uh, and how it was critical in certain community forests in in India. And she studied how people's stewardship was evidence of care for each other, for the community, fairness within the community, as well as caring for the forest in an ecological sense. Uh, And so she saw this as a critical element of the success of commoning because the market can't elicit or mobilize care except as units, uh, productivity units of service. Uh, They can't get to the intrinsic person, to the uh, the human presence and uh, care. Uh, and they can only provide service delivery, you might say. Uh, so this very idea was very important to me in, uh, and I might add, it connects quite well with feminist economics and its uh, focus on care. And uh, we wanted to highlight this in our own social understanding of, of commoning. And so that's um, sort of how that emerged and helped us Consolidate our idea that this is not within the the house of standard economics. This is in the house of anthropology and sociology, and feminist uh, feminist economics, which is trying to make bridge some of those uh, concerns between economics and care. Hmm. So I, I, you know, ask me another question, but that's sort of the general play way that we got to that point. And once we did, we be began to see that care is really an animating force in most commons because there's a social solidarity, there's a concern. And then the other patterns of commoning that we mentioned in our book Free, Fair and Alive, most were different variations of care in terms of, uh, you know, getting the shared purpose out of a diverse group of people or developing trust and transparency, all of these are different permutations of care, you might say. So I think it's a central element.
0: Mm. I mean, it reminds me, and a lot of your language actually reminds me of this distinction between instrumental or extrinsic value and intrinsic value, valuing something for its own sake. There's a really important literature on valuations of nature and I think that it also relates to our, our relationships with each other. And you have this other concept. I, th- uh, I think it's, is it soft reciprocity? I'm forgetting the adjective. Uh, that gen- gen- gentle, reci- gentle, gentle, reciprocity. gentle reciprocity. So yes. that, re- that reminds me of kind of what you're talking about. And reciprocity comes up a lot in Lenostrum's Ostrom's work. It comes a- up a lot in the literature on the evolution of cooperation. It's seen as one of the social glues that if I help you, you help me we can keep things going for a long time.
1: But the the critical thing I might add is indirect reciprocity. Mm. If it's direct reciprocity, it can very easily become a market relationship or uh, individuals uh, transacting with each other. Mm -hmm. But if it's indirect, the way many gift economies are, or the way many commons are, it's like you give something knowing in confidence in turn that you will get something back. And it's the indirectness that helps foster the social relationships and cohesion, as opposed to an even-steven trade.
0: Okay. I mean, so in your mind, David, is, is, is there something necessarily... Um, do markets necessarily crowd out intrinsic value? Is that where your concern uh, I don't, coming no, from? No, I
1: don't think... I think that's a little bit overstated, but markets... Per se, I don't think market exchange itself necessarily does that. There are lots of medieval markets or conventional local markets that can be quite benign and helpful for everyone, especially when they're inscribed within a larger social system and accountable to it. Mm -hmm. But I think markets, to the extent that today are capital driven and extractive and global, the way they are today, where everything is fungible and uh, value is collapsed or telescoped into price mm-hmm. that's when it it just sort of becomes very uh, predatory and destructive of these intrinsic capacities for care so I that's why I think many of the strategic solutions lie in creating limits on market activity that's driven by capital not necessarily limiting markets per se uh, that makes sense but that's to me. a trick that's a tricky thing because we know how capital-driven markets, and especially in a world of financialization of everything, uh, colonizes everything. Uh, and you know, we've seen, in, for example, in the Bitcoin or the NFT, the non-fungible token world, how the only imaginative solution is a market. There's nothing else that because uh, everybody wants to extract and monetize because exchange value is seen as superior or more valuable than use value, right. which is, of course, what value is it primarily exists within commons.
0: We've flipped things from how they should be, right? All we see is the exchange value when really what matters is the use value and the moral values.
1: Right, which is exactly why it's so fascinating to see, to move to the use value in uh, frame And how even within the the International Association for the Commons, it used to be the International Association for Common Property. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, maybe 20, 25 years ago, had a discussion to make that shift, which was, I think, indicative of starting to edge into the social dimensions of it as opposed to these objectified exchange value dimensions.
0: Mm -hmm. So David, why add gentle to reciprocity then? well because the
1: idea is you're not demanding the immediate return mm-hmm. uh, of for, for something gentle means you're sort of it's sort of like do you keep track of people you invite over for dinner oh we've had them 3 times they've come over four i've gone to their place four times no you have a gentle reciprocity with your friends about how many times you go over and you don't keep a calculative rational Uh, bookkeeping of all these things and the same within the commons and you know you know at a certain point when somebody hasn't been pulling their weight or contributing or reciprocating and uh, that's legitimate to address but you're otherwise not keeping everyone to a close account in some ledger
0: right so there's some other language David, and in in several chapters in the book, I think it's chapters seven and eight, you talk explicitly about the implications this has for how we view property. We've mentioned the word enclosures. You mentioned earlier in this conversation, the idea of relationalizing property. And so I'd love to ask you some questions about that. I'll start with going back to the idea of enclosures and they have, they have a bad rap. And I think my understanding that, that that's quite justified because um, enclosures of the commons are by their nature exclusionary and they're often reflecting, they're, they're exacerbating power imbalances to kind of reflect back on Hita's point. Could you talk a bit about how you view enclosures? Do you view them essentially as this kind of problematic historical process that the commoning movement is moving against? Is there a role for enclosures? Can you describe your thinking about that?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I think enclosures are generally uh, power plays by market players. Uh, In contemporary times, often corporations or investors, sometimes in collusion with state power. So, for example, the land grabs in Africa, in which governments collude with outside investors or investment funds to take over indigenous uh, lands or traditional uh, commons, and uh, yes, commons are generally pernicious, antisocial, a form of dispossession. Um, which is not to say that certain market ac- market uh, relationships are not possible or sustainable, as as I discussed earlier, if they can be made socially accountable through the polity, through law. Uh, they can be benign or constructive. You know, we have coastal fisheries commons, for example, who will sell their fish to the market, but they're not behaving the way an industrial trawler uh, operation might with their fishery. They're stewarding their resource. They're not uh, overexploiting it because they've made re- arrangements with, with each other. And uh, there's a privileging of use for household or subsistence purposes rather than for market purposes. You know, so there's, there have to be these um, buffers or intermediaries between the commons and markets because otherwise the markets tend to colonize, take over and ruin the commons, which is of course enclosure. So um, I think that's, this is a really critical part, a critical part of the analysis and discussion. Because I think this is the preeminent problem of our time—the overmarketization of the world and the destruction of social cohesion, solidarity, collaboration by capital-driven markets. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think that's that's where that's where I reflect coming out of my own background uh, from uh, public interest Washington and witnessing a lot of this enclosure of the contemporary world, which, you know, let's just be frank, the contemporary economic world regards that as progress because more value is being created, more gross domestic product is is created. And the traditional framework says, this is good. This is progress. Uh, But of course- The numbers are going up. The numbers are going up, the bottom line is improving. But there's a a wonderful phrase from, the, the British fellow, John Ruskin, who said, called this ilth. There are so many so-called externalities being created that there's a lot of illth being created uh, in conjunction with the wealth. And uh, the system doesn't take account of that because it regards the market transactions as the only significant thing. The rest is simply an externality that somebody else like government or victims can deal with. Mm. Um, you know, so I think that's part of, Moving to the commons open up, opens up a more holistic conversation that economists have been reluctant to have, or even hostile and resistant to have. But climate change, I think, is forcing a new conversation about economics itself.
0: So something that was really interesting in your answer to me, David, is that a part of your definition of enclosure was about who was doing the enclosing, who is setting the boundaries And it is, as you said, like these kind of capitalistic market oriented actors, because this has been something, I think this is one of the more challenging issues when it comes to property rights. When you look back at, you know, Lynn Ostrom's analysis of, you know, in the 1990 book, Governing the Commons, one of her design principles for successful community-based management is boundaries, social boundaries, ecological boundaries. And, what, and, and, and to me, th- that's about property rights. Property rights are about setting boundaries, about who can do what, who can have access, who doesn't. And, you know, boundaries are really a double-edged sword. You need them in order to maintain cohesion within a group. Groups aren't homogenous. Groups aren't, they can be dynamic. People come and go. But across a range of contexts, it's been shown that, no, you, you do need some understanding of, you know, a community, it's hard, to, it's hard for Maine Fishers to work well if they don't have boundaries, if anyone can come in and violate their norms. And so, um, but boundaries are also exclusionary, right? They're also saying, I'm in, you're out, and so they're not this. Tech, they're, we can't see them as this purely technical, socially neutral fix. They are rewarding some people, not others. And the way I've made sense of that is to say our evaluation of boundaries depends very much on who is being excluded and who's doing the excluding, and how well, much power those different actors have.
1: I, th- I think the focus on boundaries in a strict property sense is a function of regarding the commons as a resource. Because mm-hmm. if you start talking about the commons as a social system, you see that nomads or let's just say the early Native American tribes uh, in their relationships with forests and ecosystems had very fluid boundaries. And uh, they it was more of a social understanding. And I mean, that's one reason in Free, Fair and Alive, we talk about semi-permeable membranes mm-hmm. around commons, meaning... A commons needs to be invigorated by the life outside of it. It's not simply a matter of transacting to get what you need. It's a matter of being open to the creativity, the social currents. And this is especially visible in the digital spaces of, say, open source software, where people collaborate in all sorts of evolving, flexible, fluid ways. And you're not saying, oh, that's my code. That's your code. And let, you, know, you can't have it. And so there is this kind of uh, more dynamic, changing relationship. And once you're in the framework of commons as a social system, it makes perfect sense because, you know, I, I may, well, a neighborhood might have a tool, a tool uh, commons of sharing. And there's all sorts of ways that people can say, well, this kind of sharing's okay, but, you know, taking that for too long, that's not okay. Yeah. In other words, you can have these very complex, socially contingent ways of sharing that have nothing to do directly with property in the economic sense, in the Garrett Hardin sense. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, you could say that traditional property law as a tool of capitalism projects, ascribes certain social relationships that just aren't true. These other ways can evolve. And You could also look at David Graeber's new book, The Dawn of Everything, about the history of of humankind, especially in cities. And he shows how a certain, uh, well, I hate to use the term anarchist anarchist, uh, flexibility and fluidity characterized a a lot of governance at the time, even in cities. It wasn't as rigidly hierarchical. So I, I guess I just wanted to open up that space we in this these chapters on the so-called relationalized property to show that property is about social relations and they're far more um, versatile, flexible, evolutionary than we may imagine from within a capitalist economy perspective.
2: Mm. To follow up on that, I, I mean I guess this question largely comes in from my own probably training A as a biologist, B as someone who then moved from biology into looking at uh, institutional uh, stuff, uh, following on the tradition from Lynn Ostrom, so common pool resources. I think I'm circling back to the question of power again here, because um, you mentioned this idea called stinted commons, where you know you're, you're referring to commons that are managed to protect the renewable capacities of a natural system and i'm also looking at what i mean listening to what michael was talking just now about about uh, enclosures uh, and who is doing the enclosures and uh, why they're doing the enclosures and in a sense to me there is a certain conflict here because these enclosures can also come from within the community like for example a lot of work that i've done in bangalore uh, talks about i mean how uh, caste based restrictions which are not equitable not egalitarian none of it uh, are imposed uh, but at the same time they give you some ecological outcome that might be favorable it might be might be that you're you're you know increasing the renewable what is it called renewable capacities of the fish population in, in the lakes or something like that. And I'm just I guess I guess I'm trying to unpack the tension here between the idea of power as operating from within communities uh, and the idea of enclosures, Uh, that we're critiquing from a very capitalist perspective, but can also come from within the community. Um,
1: Well, I mean, I think that's a fantastic point. And I I guess my, my weak answer is I think this is terribly under theorized. Uh, I mean, I think there are man's uh, humankind's capacity to dominate others doesn't end when you enter the world of the commons. Uh, And I think that, you know, even within Wikipedia, as I mentioned, we have these gender dominance issues. Uh, so I think, you know, and I, I, I'm, my intuition is that this takes many complex forms that have to do with perhaps the scale of the commons, the type of resources uh, that are being managed, uh, the, uh, the cultural and geographic uh, history so uh, uh, I think that that's a topic that I would love to see more of and understand better because uh, it's clearly at work and we know the the racial and ethnic dimensions uh, often play a, a role as well. And I maybe I think it has a lot to do with these commons being inscribed in larger uh, capitalist contexts where those, some of these othering practices are more... Uh, recurrent, more dominant, but uh, I'm not. I'm not going to venture a theory for that right now. I think it is a, a an area that we need to know more about.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I was just talking to Michael uh, before you uh, joined us on this call, and one of the things that I guess I I have a deep discomfort with is usually, you know, when you read across these various schools of thought, um, you. I mean, so. My my frame of reading has been limited to environmental history, uh, political ecology, a bit of Ostrom's uh, work on institutions, social ecological systems, resilience, uh, that, that uh, space. And each of them obviously has their own epistemological uh, backing. They all come from different ways of thinking. But at the end of the day, I think, I mean, a lot of what they say is essentially the fact that there are inequities, A, that a lot of it is being rendered invisible, depending on how you choose to look at a problem. A lot of it is rendered visible, depending on how you choose to highlight a problem. They all come from different ways of knowing the world around them. But I mean, it, it, it basically just coheres into this idea, right? And then I, I was thinking, I mean, we are also, I mean, in your book also, you've introduced a whole new language, but well, not new language, but you've introduced a whole language around the commoning ideas, uh, some of the things that we talked about just now, patterns, um, uh, relational, situational, knowing, uh, stinted commons, and so on. And I'm just wondering how much in creating languages are we also siloing ourselves? because. Uh, And I guess this comes in from also deep discomfort that I have pretty much when I try to speak across disciplines and hear things which say, okay, this is coming in from a particular perspective and it doesn't mingle with that. Um, When essentially the end point is the same. Uh, I mean, and maybe this also... Well, I I
1: don't think the end points are entirely the same in the sense that with an economic Mm -hmm. capitalist system, you have some pretty strong and strict Mm. justifications for inequality. It's your fault if you're poor or dispossessed Ah. because you as an individual didn't behave in a certain way or you weren't entrepreneurial. Whereas the language of the commons, I think, has far more capacity for uh, focusing on fairness, inclusion, uh, participation, not othering the other. You have more epistemological Justifications for focusing on those and for uh, mm-hmm. having more egalitarian, progressive, fair outcomes than the standard capitalist framework. Mm. So I think you know it's not as if the language alone or that the framework of the commons solves the problem, but it changes the terrain. It changes some of the perceptions. It offers more justifications and uh, more justifications. Or change or better outcomes. So I think that's one reason I feel the discourse is extremely important in, its, in itself, even though of course it doesn't solve a lot of these problems and there remain many challenges to, to uh, continue to advance.
0: I mean, so that does remind me of another question on what I ask you, David, about your own role in fostering change. I, I, I believe you, you Called yourself an activist earlier, so you, and you do a lot of writing, and you're developing these ideas. And a lot of it feels like a project of reframing how we're thinking about a relationship with each other and with the natural environment. What are other activities that you do that you also that you feel synergize with your authorship activities to promote this change and this reframing?
1: Well, you know, I, it takes a number of forms. I recently released a new book called the Commoners Catalog for Changemaking, which is uh, inspired by the Whole Earth Catalog. And it's a series of short profiles of different types of uh, commons, projects, websites, books, initiatives to popularize and to validate this. Despite the huge diversity that you see in the commons, the commons verse, as I like to call it, uh, there are profound uh, similarities and and shared affinities among them. Uh, You know, seed sharing and software code sharing are not so different in the challenges they face despite one being a living system and one something else. So I do a lot of public education and webinars and outreach like that. But another thing that I do um, have done a lot in the past is deep dive workshops as we call them where there's some issue we don't quite understand enough. For example, the role of state power in the commons or the possibilities of digital co-ops in improving things or, oh, we've, we've had a dozen or more over the years with colleagues where we invite people, uh, maybe 10 or 15, 20 people maybe to focus on the issue to try to bring it surface a greater understanding from people who are well-placed to understand it. We did a, a workshop with David Graeber on a progressive theory of value. He says that one problem that progressives have is they don't have an alternative theory of value to market price. Uh, we have values, but those are not integrated into the economic schema. Uh, so I think that's another way we try to build relationships and surface knowledge that could help advance uh, some public discussions. But uh, otherwise it's a lot of uh, work uh, horizontally, you might say, I'm kind of a self-appointed ambassador who goes among different, different milieus of the commons to learn, to trade information, to stimulate and suggest certain possibilities for strategic change. So I, I don't. It's kind of a strange answer, but being an activist allows means tra- traversing a lot of different uh, communities and trying to galvanize new initiatives.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, I think it segues pretty well too to this issue of of scale that we started to talk about earlier, and I'll add this additional language that piggybacks on also a previous part of the conversation, right? Like one of the things that Lynn used to express a lot of concern for is this idea of panaceas, right? That, and this relates to scale pretty directly, right? Because the concern with the panacea is that once you find a hammer, you're just gonna be looking for nails everywhere. And so the concern about panacea thinking is essentially overgeneralizing a solution that we've kind of fallen in love with. And I think this is, this is, this is an, this is, a temptation that we never fully get over as humans, right? We always wanna kind of find something that works and then promote it. And so I don't think there's nothing, something wrong with that per se, but I do think it's a question we always wanna be asking ourselves is, am I kind of falling into kind of the panacea mindset? And I think we fall into that mindset even more when we think about scale, because what is scale and scaling up about, right? It's about generalizing a solution and saying, oh, well, how do we actually do this in here and there and everywhere? And the final ingredient to me in this process is one of the concerns I think we, we confront when we think about scale is that there's a bias in, in, in scaling up. Um, some things scale better than others, right? Technology scales better than behavior um, because you can kind of reproduce it more than you can reproduce people and leadership and accountability. And so for me, when we are thinking about these things like your concept of the commons, it is, it is deeply behavioral. It's, and, and I think intentionally, it's not a technical solution. And I would be more uncomfortable. I would be uncomfortable with it. If you were saying, look, there's just this technical fix and we just need to implement it everywhere. And then it scales. Great. That would be its own kind of much greater problem. So how do you think about scale, David? Is it a wrong path to start off in the first place? Do we not be spending our time thinking about this? And how do you think about that?
1: No, I, I think it's uh, it's the right issue, but I would not use the word scale, as I will explain in a moment. I think, first of all, you're entirely right that because commons are so context-specific, we have to honor that. And one reason that One way that Silke and I tried to do that in our book was by using what we called the pattern language methodology that Christopher Alexander used, which is he was a dissident urbanist and architect who developed this idea of pattern languages of how certain social behaviors over time surface and manifest. It's a bottom-up phenomena. You know, why do certain architectural designs recur across cultures and throughout history? Well, it's because they satisfy certain elemental human needs and, and sp- even spiritual dimensions. And we see in commons, too, that there are certain behaviors that recur, that recur in different contexts. And they're not identical, but they are similar and form patterns. And that's why Silke and I talk about patterns of commoning, because there's certain different solutions to the same prob- similar problems. And uh, so uh, what I want I mention this because yes, the context and diversity of commons needs to be acknowledged. Having said that patterns can help us to speak about the regularities that occur in commons across very diverse contexts. And that's, we do need a way to generalize in ways that also honor that context and diversity. Um, So having said all that, the way we get to scale, quote, is to a phrase that we invented, emulate and federate. You're not using best practices or a single model and just slavishly imitating it. You're emulating its spirit and general purpose and then connecting with others to federate. And we already see this in the open source and digital world where different digital communities are essentially emulating and federating with each other. They work closely in collaborative ways without creating some headquarters or centralized hierarchical uh, uh, organizational form for it. So one way to get a larger, it's not scale, which implies hierarchy and centralization, but more, Mm -hmm. In, uh, impact and scope, you might say, through, uh, here the internet metaphor applies, the kind of swarming and diversity and viral nature of things where the virus takes a lot of forms as it grows and changes, but its scope increases uh, as its uh, footprint grows. So I I guess here again, the ontological shift matters in how we talk about this. Scale is kind of a loaded term, but yes, of course, as an activist, I want the commons to have a broader influence and impact, but I think it happens more through horizontal federation than through centralized hierarchies.
0: I mean, it sounds like, I want to use the word network here, it sounds like you're trying to grow a, a social network of peers. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think that networks take different forms. The so-called topology of networks can take different forms. I think we're trying to explore some of these networks already exist. I think they need to be more self-aware, more robust. We need to figure out how to support networks uh, because you know philanthropies prefer to support standalone NGOs. They don't quite know how to support a network, how somebody can be uh, a steward and care for it and grow it. And that requires, frankly, different forms of leadership, different forms of organization, uh, which I think we're still grappling with uh, how, to, how to grow network collaboration to make it uh, have impact.
0: Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of one of the main governance challenges we talk a lot about on this podcast is the, the difficulty of invisibility and legibility. Like how do you make yourself as an organization legible to other Mm -hmm. folks that might help you? And philanthropy certainly has this challenge, right? That everyone, you know, stereotypically philanthropists want, you know, a shiny new building with their name on it, but they don't want to help with underlying infrastructure that you actually need to keep things running.
1: Or I, I, you mentioned a magic word for me, infrastructure. I think the, quote, scare quote, scaling of commons requires new infrastructures of finance, of legal support, of administrative support, uh, sometimes with the state, if the state can act with goodwill and not uh, malicious purposes. But it needs those types of infrastructures so that starting a commons, growing a commons, is not a heroic activity that some charismatic individual has to do through a historical fluke but it can be normalized and made easier uh, because the way the way certain the creative commons licenses, for example, as legal infrastructure, make it easy to share something in a legal fashion. Whereas before you might've had to hire an attorney to get a contract for your copyright ownership. Uh, you know, so those are the kinds of things that I am focusing on these days is trying to develop infrastructures, that maybe are compatible with public policy and Western jurisprudence uh, to support commons. But that opens up a whole nother complicated conversation because Western jurisprudence with its focus on the individual individual rights, contracts, market exchange, uh, doesn't understand or is hostile to common in many cases. And so you need legal hacks like the Creative Commons licenses, or the General Public License for open source software, or community land trusts, you need these kind of hacks to uh, support, facilitate, encourage commons.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a point you make in the book, and I've read elsewhere the the ignorance and antagonism that U.S. law has towards say collective ownership. And you mentioned the Dawes Act and the impact it had on Native American common property and I've been reading a little bit about the impact that this same dynamic has on African-American property. And it's, it's dispossessive frequently because it doesn't recognize the, the idea that people might want to own something collectively. It kind of militates against it.
1: It's fascinating that it's not just historical but perspective. There's a lot of young farmers today who want to share land and other resources in new farming ventures. And they just, the legal precedents are not there. There's a group called Agrarian Trust that started a number of so-called agrarian commons to help deal with this. And groups like the Sustainable Economies Law Center in Oakland, uh, run by Janelle Orsi, are master legal craftsmen in trying to develop, for example, different types of bylaws for nonprofits or co-ops or other types of legal hacks that can work within a body of law that doesn't get sharing and collaboration and commenting, but to make it legally uh, defensible (laughs) and and for the law to support it. So I mean, I think it's a fantastic frontier that needs to be developed.
0: Yeah. Well, so David, moving forward, if you're not moving back to DC, do do you see yourself visiting? to kind of help promote some of these changes? I'm curious about what you see your next steps as being.
1: Well, I mean, frankly, I find my European friends far more advanced than we Americans in nourishing my thinking on, and, and activism in this area. So I expect to be spending more time there as well as where other opportunities might arise. I think that the Washington policy world is not, even, even if I were to find the most sympathetic legislator They couldn't run with many of these proposals in the future because their peer group and the whole framework and culture of, you know, uh, electoral politics and legislation works against it. I think the more serious activity is going to happen at the local and municipal level. There's a number of major cities like Amsterdam and Barcelona, some places in Italy and others which are exploring ways that policy can support commons and even develops what what I like to call commons public partnerships, in which bureaucracies can get beyond some of their command and control propensities. Electoral politics, the politicians can say, oh, we would love the trust and legitimacy of ordinary citizens. We wanna leverage their creativity, open source style. let's devise new structures for making that happen. So I think this is going to happen at municipal and city level and local levels because things are less ideological there. They're more practically oriented. The human scale is closer as well. Um, So Washington is probably going to be the last stop for me.
0: Fair enough. Well, this has been great, David. Are there any particular topics, threads that we started that you want to make sure that we return to and wrap up at least a little bit before we conclude?
1: No, I guess I would just say, I think uh, there's a huge need for, I think, more practitioner academic collaborations. Mm. So that, because I think a lot of academics have a lot of deep knowledge and historical knowledge, which would be beneficial to practitioners or commoners and commoners for their part often don't have, uh, you know, easy ways to access that. But At the same time, I think academics could learn a lot from practitioners about the different weave of what's going on. As a practitioner, you learn different things. You kick the beast and see how it responds. You're not just reading things. Uh, And I think there's a a need to to get out in the field and mix it up. The way way Lynn Ostrom did, looking at things firsthand, that was the source of a lot of her insights, it was not conforming to what the received abstract uh, corpus of the canon said. Um, (laughs) So I I would, I would love to have more opportunities for practitioners and academics to mix it up and and learn from each other.
0: Well, David, if, if nothing else, you've given me a good title for this episode, which would be something like, don't just read things, go and kick the beasts.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I think there's a, there's different forms of knowledge out there and we need to uh, understand them on their own terms.
0: But I totally agree. I mean, something that I've thought a lot about and I was thinking about as you were talking, it's just, it's very different to intellectualize and think about things and then to do them. And you need to do both, right? It's And, and doing is its own kind of learning.
1: And the making the making sense, I mean, I have sort of fallen into a space Of trying to make sense of contemporary contemporaneous unfolding developments because there are certain deeper insights they're not just aberrational one-offs and i'm trying to detect some of these larger patterns that will give us a purchase on what's going on and allow us to uh, to build on frankly Mm. so that's where uh, where my head's at. So I kind of occupy this interstitial space between a lot of different types of communities.
0: Yeah, it's actually, um, I asked this question of a lot of our guests. So I'll, I suppose I'll conclude by asking it to you. Do you view yourself as a kind of boundary actor, boundary spanner, connecting different groups in order to get things done?
1: A- absolutely. But I guess I would just add, I'm not entirely agnostic. I have my own, values and agenda which i think my writing speaks to in trying to move that forward and i i have frankly post-capitalist aspirations of you know not revolution tomorrow but let's develop some different social forms that are legally defensible and practical and culturally attractive let's identify and move those forward uh so that's sort of where i'm coming from and uh i think (laughs) The good news, despite all the dismal news of these times, is there's some fantastic projects going on out there, which need to find each other, need to take encouragement from each other, need to be a public presence as a viable alternative to uh, the dysfunctional systems we have now. And this is especially true in the context of climate
0: change. I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, the, the idea of kind of place-based inspiration, we, we, get, I, I lose, we often lose sight of it, right? We start doom scrolling and you forget that there are extraordinary people doing extraordinary things against really big challenges. And I think you, that it's very nourishing to be in a place and see people doing that and maybe even participate yourself.
1: Absolutely. So we need to create those meeting spaces uh, for learning from each other and collaborating
0: with each other. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries on our blog on our website, InCommonPodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.